Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, a quick apology. As the result of an issue at our syndicator, about a third of users who downloaded last week's program in the first day it was available, so not a lot of you, suffered some audio issues in the program's 49th minute. We deleted the original file and re-uploaded it, and that eliminated the problem. So if you haven't heard our show with Robert Irwin yet, and it's a good one, the file now on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and everywhere else should sound great. Thanks, and sorry. On to this week's program. On April 17th, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth will open Frank Stella, a Retrospective. The exhibition is the most comprehensive survey to date of one of America's most prominent living artists. It was curated by Michael Opping in association with Whitney Museum of American Art director Adam Weinberg and will remain on view through September 18th before traveling to the De Young in San Francisco. The exhibition catalog was published by Yale University Press. Frank Stella is my guest for the full program after a break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. A Baroque masterpiece has joined the Getty Collection. Orazio Gentileschi's Danai depicts the moment Zeus descends as a shower of gold to impregnate the cloistered princess, who then gave birth to Perseus. Painted around 1621, it was part of a commission of three paintings depicting different scenes of women experiencing divine encounters drawn from Hebrew, Christian, and Greek theologies. Danai can now be seen with another member of the triad, Lot and his daughters, only at the Getty. For more information, visit getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Sculpted in Steel, a luxurious display of innovative, machine-inspired Art Deco style. Featuring 14 cars and three motorcycles, along with vintage images and videos from this iconic period, now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash sculptedinsteel for more. And we're back. Frank Stella, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi. Nice to be here, <laughs> wherever it is. <laughs> in, in the digital world. You have had more museum surveys and retrospectives than pretty much any American artist of your generation or, or any generation since. By my count, this is about your sixth American survey of the last 60 years, and there have been several European ones, too. You, that, that means you've had a chance to see more of your work hung in one place, looking back at 10, 20, or 50 years' worth of work than just about anybody else. And I wonder, does, does, does seeing a, a, a lifetime of work in one place still impact you, still get you thinking about directions, either past or future? No, I don't think so. I think you, you don't think about it. It's, it's the exhibition, whenever it is, is, is about itself. You know, the future just means leaving the museum and going back to your studio, which is what you do most of the time anyway. But in a way, there's no real future. It's here and now. 
Have you found that seeing these big survey shows of your own work inform, tend to inform what you do next? No, I, I don't think so, no. It's usually over before they get the idea of the doing the show. I'm already finished with it, <laughs> more or less. Your exhibition history really is kind of the most interesting exhibition history of, of any post-war American artist. You famously had your, your first retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art 12 years after finishing Princeton as an undergraduate. In hindsight, was it good to have a big retrospective at MoMA just 12 years after being out of school? You know, just revolves around your definition of good. It doesn't much affect the work. I mean, because the, you've, you've done the work, so you're having the exhibitions of, of what you've done. And then after the exhibition is over, you're going to do the work that you're going to do one way or the other. So, I mean, it's not – you don't worry about it in that sense. I mean, what you mostly worry about is what people tell you they think about it. But you almost pretty much know what they're going to say anyway. Have you had to develop ways of dealing with both the waves of exhibitions and the waves of people responding to them? Well, I think it's a, you know, a question of, you know, controlling yourself or, you know, learning to behave or be more social or something. I mean, yeah, you don't blurt out what you're really thinking most of the time anyway. Uh, you probably don't do that in any situation. I don't know. But you certainly don't do that when people tell you what they really feel about your work. And it's not usually what they think. It's usually what they feel. That's a good transition to a 1969 interview you did with Sidney Tillam um, for the Archives of American Art. And, and of all the things I read to prepare to talk to you, I and of all of the Archives of American Art oral histories I've read over many years now, I, I thought this one was a particularly interesting document because Sidney Tillam says a lot, an awful lot of what he thinks. And it's also a conversation that seems very 1969. The, the overwhelming emphasis of the conversation is on you as an abstract painter and... Sydney as a non-abstract painter. Yeah, and how much of the conversation revolved around abstraction versus representation and those two things as being the North Pole and the South Pole, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, they're apartness from each other. Well, that may be true up to a point, but what it's really about, and I think that's why it's so probably so good as a as an interview or people meeting each other, the Sydney came from where, in a sense, people wanted to believe I didn't come from. And Sydney came from American art in the 20th century, but basically the last 30 years, American painting uh, as it grew from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And that, and that was a whole group of painters, most of whom in the end turned out to be abstract, but none of them started that way. And the only difference between me and them outside of the issue of quality was that I began uh, without having to pass through that part of uh, representation in my professional life, as you might call it, or my career, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I mean, when I was born in 1936, abstraction already existed and was established. But for those other artists, they were still looking back and we still felt American art always felt the pressure of European art and Sydney felt it and all of the uh, painters, abstract expressionist painters were tremendously moved by it. I mean, it was a kind of anxiety to have to deal with the painting, uh, the great painting in Europe, particularly of the 20th century. Yeah, no, but it was lost on me in a certain sense because they did it. 
and they did it really well. And I could go directly, you know, to Malevich and Mondrian and Kandinsky. And I certainly knew that as I went to them, I still had to live with Picasso, Matisse, and Miro, as they did. So when you were working in the studio in the in the 50s and 60s, did you ever think about representation? I mean, I understand what you were saying in terms of those that previous generation of artists having to work through it. But for you, was that even a thing that you considered? No, I mean, it's it's ludicrous. I mean, why would I, you know, the, the only time it ever came up is when you were, you know, meeting young ladies or something like that. And most, you know, nine out of ten of them really wanted to pose for you. But, you know, it would have been a waste of time with me. So you never did that? No, I, I never got anyone to visit my garret on that pretext. So in hindsight, was the kind of near religious split between abstract painters and representational painters as important as both camps thought it was at the time? I think that in, uh, it, it's kind of a little bit after the fact when Sydney's kind of talking about it and Sydney's a little deeper into it. But the other artists, though, even those who are representational and semi-representational, after all, a huge amount of art is semi-representational or semi-abstract, depending on how you know, how you want to look at it. So I think that it's a little bit more severe or for whatever reason, Sydney's drawing the line in a way that's finer than, than it actually existed. Because after all, they were in the club, say, for example. I mean, Philip Perlstein was there, you know, alongside Gustin and Klein, say. I mean, those artists were always there and talking about what they were doing. So a lot of them, uh, you know, were painting uh, in, in the middle, one of those painters who often operated in the middle was Willem de Kooning. And in many of the interviews I've read you give over the years, it's always de Kooning about whom you speak most effusively. And that's true in interviews from the 60s. And I think that that's, I think there's a lot of de Kooning in the work right up until the present. What about de Kooning? So, so, and I wanted to dig into that a little bit. Let's kind of back at the beginning. What about de Kooning interested you from the start? Well, de Kooning stands for something. I mean, which is a kind of painterliness, and it's the painterliness from figurative art that people keep talking about, because that, that's the way painting becomes beautiful in painting the figure or making recognizable or representational art. The reality is that, you know, Pollock, by painting the uh, drip paintings and making what's called a breakthrough, has gone beyond that in a way. And so has de Kooning by being just completely gestural, except in... It doesn't come back until actually later in Pollock in the black and white paintings, Frogman, for example. It, it, you know, those guys, it, they don't really break completely from it for whatever reason. And so, but that wasn't, that was an issue for me in the sense that I had no, nothing to go back to. So it wasn't going to creep through in my work. So were you finding de Kooning interesting because of composition, gesture, canvas size? Well, there was a subject. split, as well as the split between abstraction and representation. There was a split in the 60s, well, before the 60s, in the 50s, geometrical abstraction, which was well thought of and everything, but that was a kind of conflict between the strictly geometric painters and uh, painterly abstract painters. So there was a kind of split there already. And, you know, and, and it certainly came up in my case and everything, when I would seem to be geometric, a kind of geometric, abstract, 
academic kind of painter. And the idea of the gestural painters and their freedom was that they weren't academic and that they were and that they weren't tight in the way, say, geometric painting was. Ten, they tended to see it, although the you know the geometric painting was quite good, and it was recognized to be good by even. The, it wasn't a real competition, but it was you know side by side. It was kind of competitive. But painterly painting seemed to take the edge and capture the imagination of the audience and the and the. You know, it seemed to be the way forward because of Pollock. When de Kooning returned to the figure, did you find that something to reckon with, to work through a challenge? No, it didn't last very long. I mean, it was really a few paintings. It was over in a hurry. And I thought they were interesting paintings. I liked them. I mean, they were kind of spectacular in their way. But the brouhaha or the discussion of them and what they meant and this and that, I thought was kind of beside the point. I mean, it was beside the point in the sense that, you know, it was, you know, de Kooning's prerogative to do that. I think one other way I see de Kooning kind of continuing your work from maybe the mid-70s on is as you began to work in three dimensions, in, in relief, if you will, that some of the marks, such as maybe in, I don't know, Eskimo Curlew in, in, in 1976, could almost be brush strokes. Yeah, I mean, they certainly are. And, and, they, and there, there is, you know, there's a contradiction between the hard edge of the forms and the paintingliness painterliness of the surface, a relative painterliness. It's a hard word to say. But I think that was, I, I think that was part of the problem of the times because by, by the 70s or by that time, you know, there was such an emphasis on, uh, I don't know what you call it, idea art or fiddling around. And so in a way, painterliness seemed to be kind of lost. I mean, there was, uh, art schools couldn't produce anybody who could paint in the same way that they used to say that art schools couldn't produce anybody who could make representational paintings. But it, it got to be a case where they couldn't paint at all, or they didn't want to, they would say. So that work in the mid-70s and early 80s is a lot about that painterliness? I, I think so, yeah. I think I felt, you know, why not, or, you know, what are they talking about? Was it de Kooning's painterli painterliness you admired most? Not necessarily. I mean, it, that was certainly part of it. But, I mean, I like Pollock's painting, or Adolf Gottlieb, you know, or I, just the whole the whole ethos of abstract expressionist painting from the, you know, from, say, uh, Gorky. I mean, from 35 to 50, 1950, it was all great. So, and then they all had a, uh, take Bradley Walker Tomlin, for example. I mean, they all had a terrific touch, you know, and that sense of, touch with a purpose seemed to have, you know, kind of dissipated. And I thought that was sort of sad, although I can't say that I was able to really revive it or do it well enough. I mean, and I think that's unfortunately what happened to, uh, ab to painterly painting this, painterly painting, <laughs> in a way. I mean, I think it's probably <laughs> We're never get that right. love Jasper so much because he has the touch. Both John's work and saying caustic and Tomlin both have touch in the sense that you in wonderful conventional sense, perhaps. I don't know how conventional it really is, but it's really you recognize it right away as a touch that you, you're bound to love. It's in their fingers more than in their wrist. It's it's a more personal scale. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just a familiarity with the reality of making painting. 
you know, it's it's the touch of the brush or, or the whatever instrument it is that you're using and the material that you're marking with. One of the other things in the in the Sydney Tellum interview that really caught my eye was that you said that Kenneth Noland influenced your sense of the potential of scale. I, you know, that was that got me thinking that I had been kind of taking the size of your your paintings for granted. What what did I mean? And, and Nolan obviously would make make color field paintings that could be twelve, twenty feet even long. What what was your sense of scale before Nolan, and how did he change it? Well, I think that the, the size is it is the sense of scale. I mean, in Ken's painting, it, it was something that later on I could see in Helen Frankenthal's painting, but at the time I couldn't. But it's the you know it's the space in between things. I mean, the the unpainted part of the raw canvas in between the rings, for example, on a conventional circle or target painting, that was a pretty strange space to me. I mean, you know, I was never that at ease with, you know, unpainted surface, unmarked surface. And they re- it really worked, and I couldn't quite understand how it worked. You know, I, I, you know, I kept thinking about it, although I never actually really did anything about it. <laughs> so it was more the space within his canvases than their enormity. Yeah, but the, yes, it wasn't the size. It was what you said, the scale, the interior scale. And and what I liked about it, I mean, the rings give a perfect example of it. I mean, you can feel the sense that they can keep on expanding. Is that something that stayed in your work ever since? Well, it, I mean... It, it it could happen. It it doesn't work so easily though. But it, as an idea, it's really kind of interesting. You know, it's it's a version of the puddle, or the rock in the in the water. You know, that the expanding waves. You know, it keeps going for a long time. There there are two things you've said over the years that have caught my ear because they strike me as pretty foundational yet being totally removed from the artists and, and art scene, the New York scene about which we've been talking. One of them, I think this dates to 1970, you said, I like the idea of color being both a line and a direction and the form and color working together and having a sense of direction. As I think about that and look at your work, it makes a ton of sense, but it also seems very much like it comes out of Matisse. Was he an interest in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s? Well, yeah, Matisse was one of those things. He's, he's certainly an interest, and he's a kind of given, but, I mean, it's no accident. If it hadn't been for Matisse's uh, painting at the modern, I guess, the Red Studio, I mean, you wouldn't have had so-called pinstripe black paintings. I mean, they're black with unpainted space in between. The, the line is in between. It's not painted. And that's uh, the way that uh, Matisse did with the Red Studio. The line is white, as it were, but it's really unpainted. Or it's the ground. So you mean the white line that kind of demarcates the room in that space? Yeah, yeah. Ah, so Red Studio got you. Yeah, it was. It was, a, it was a. Yeah, it was a kind of powerful. <laughs> it was a great idea. Did you first see that at the modern, or did you first see it somewhere else? Uh, I don't know. I hope it's at the modern. I think that's the painting. I'm. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, it's it. It, it must be at the modern, right? I don't know where I Yeah, it is. Yeah. Although now I, that I think about it, you may have first seen it when on, on Fifth Avenue before. Oh, I, that's before my time. <laughs> uh, but the, the obverse of that, the other side, is, is, the, is the black line of Picasso, the black line drawing, which it was kind of, you know, wonderful to think of another way of doing it without having to draw in the positive sense the way Picasso did so positively and powerfully so you didn't have to sort of compete with that kind of black outlining 
another quote in, in which I thought of Matisse right away was you, you, and I don't know what year this quote is from. It wasn't footnoted in what I read. You said, quote, my main interest has been to make what is popularly called decorative painting, truly viable and unequivocal abstract terms. Maybe this is beyond abstract painting, but that's what I'd like. That's where I'd like my paintings to go. Yeah, and I, I certainly bet. I, I put the whole bankroll on it. Yeah. <laughs> is that a Matisse, Is that an idea from Matisse? Oh, I mean, Matisse, yeah, for sure. American painters have spent a century running away from the idea of decorative. Why were you willing to to move toward it? Well, you know, it's a little tricky about what artists run away from it at what time they run away from it. But you have to also remember behind what happened in New York in the, from 1930, basically, or 35 until 1950 when I came around, behind all of that painting and the action of the painting and the feeling of the artists who were making the painting was a kind of art historical not backdrop, reinforcement. I mean, with the artists that came from Europe came the art historians from Europe. And they were very supportive and, of course, very knowledgeable. And they brought a kind of knowing about uh, European painting to America that seeped into the artists, whether they wanted to know it or not. I mean, just think of Walter Friedlander, for example. I mean, so that's another way. You know, they couldn't back away from 19th century painting, and they couldn't back away from the painting of the Renaissance. So, I mean, you know, with the, so with the people that were at Columbia and the NYU School of Fine Arts, the artists knew more about European painting probably than they wanted to know. And it's interesting because they only knew it in a way from them or in reproduction because they didn't travel that much, although some came from Europe and knew. So, but decorative painting is a, an idea of being a pejorative is, is relatively new. I mean, decorative painting, the great decorative painting, take Anibale Karachi and the Farnese, or the decorative painting of Michelangelo. I mean, the European painting and painting that was not on a simple easel painting is, is a great part of painting, certainly the history of Western painting. And need I mention Lascaux? Yeah, and it continues through all the way through European modernism. It's one of the few things that, say, Viennese modernism has in common with Parisian modernism. They both do and love doing decorative painting. So I think that decorative started to, was a kind of way in the beginning of putting down abstraction because it was kind of simple and just decorative and didn't have the force of uh, representational painting. Basically, they meant the depth and illusion. Flatness was seen as decorative. So by embracing it, you were willing to, you were, you were trying to align yourself and probably successfully aligning yourself with a European tradition. Well, I didn't see it as being so different. I mean, I knew that maybe you could come out on the other side. I mean, I wasn't worried that, you know, that it was going to be a problem. So you mentioned all those art historians who came from Europe, and, and that, that got me thinking about how historians have often suggested that the American landscape tradition, the painted landscape tradition, was was substantially subsumed into abstract American painting, that it kind of went away and abstraction took its place. And I wonder if you were ever interested in, in landscape or motivated in any way that maybe isn't immediately evident in your paintings by the American landscape tradition. I don't, I think it's a coincidence. I don't think, not that I have anything against American landscape painting, say George Innes or, you know, or, you know, the popular luminous or anything like that. But I mean, in fact, landscape painting, you know, I think, again, it's a given, but I see it 
from the from northern Europe as to be, you know, where abstraction came from. So, and in my paintings, I mean, it's simple-minded in a certain way, but, you know, horizontal bands that go from one side of the painting to the other are essentially the, the paintings before the black paintings, for sure, even though they're alternate, multicolored or something, a, a basically landscape format. So you could say that, you know, it, it, it could be a kind of landscape, but at certain points it became obviously that it was a kind of urban landscape, which was what was happening. Is is that why when you get into the aluminum paintings, the bands flip and become vertical? I'm not sure. It, 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 that's not a bad idea, but I thought of it as happening in the, in the other pictures. But the aluminum paintings are different from all of the other paintings because that they were trying to be, it's silly to say it in a way, more abstract. And I was certainly thinking about Malevich. And I was thinking about the, the quality of the paint, the materiality, that it, it was kind of, it didn't absorb. So you didn't, you, you didn't get much illusion. And I was, the idea was that you could be like what Malevich wanted for abstraction was to, for it to be an art of pure feeling. And the idea that the aluminum paint had a kind of purity to it. And if it worked, it would be in effect, you would have a pure feeling. And those are the purest paintings I ever painted. <laughs> My guest is Frank Stella. We'll be right back after a break. The Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan has reinstalled its entire fourth floor galleries with works exclusively from the 1960s in the new exhibition From the Collection, 1960 to 1969. Aimed to inspire a variety of fresh discoveries and unexpected connections, this presentation interweaves works from all of MoMA's curatorial departments and focuses on a decade in which experimentation flourished, traditional mediums were transformed, and socio-political upheaval occurred across the globe. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Suspended Animation, an exhibition of six emerging artists working with digital animation, is currently on view at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. By turns eerie, absurd, and entrancing, Installations by Ed Atkins, Antoine Catala, Ian Chang, Josh Klein, Helen Martin, and Agnieszka Polska confront us with unsettling visions of our digital selves. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and find out who lives in the uncanny valley. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Ellipsis, on view April 15th through July 2nd. Ellipsis is a group exhibition that invites visitors to listen, look, touch, taste, and pause, celebrating the senses and embracing a range of individual and collective experiences. Spanning artistic practices and eras, Ellipsis brings out unexpected variations in perception, interaction, and awareness, featuring works by Roman Ondok, Janet Cardiff, Felix Gonzalez-Torres, Odilon Redon, John Bresland, Thilius Moss, and Claudia Rankine and John Lucas, in addition to a rotating selection of works by Doris Salcedo, Jean Arp, Ellsworth Kelly, Richard Serra, Getty Saboni, and Mark Rothko. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Frank Stella. So I have some questions that kind of bounce around a bit and are substantially more specific than the things we've been discussing that kind of pick out interesting moments from history. 
Um, I hope they're interesting, and and I'm kind of hoping that you can go back in your mind and, I don't know, maybe remember some things. Um, in 1963, you had a show at the Ferris Gallery in Los Angeles, the famed Ferris Gallery at which all the Ferris boys, Ed Ruscha, Robert Irwin, yada, 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 showed. It was an exhibition of concentric squares and mitered mazes. Do you remember... First, did you go out for that show, or did you just send the word? Yeah, I, but I, I was there, and it was the first time I'd seen a palm tree in my life. It was also the first time I saw, I first time I'd ever seen a oil derrick, those donkeys bouncing up and down on, on the way in on La, La Cienega. Yeah, and the cab driver ran into somebody besides. It took us a while to get into town. <laughs> it was fairly dramatic, but I don't remember the show at all. <laughs> Well, that was, you know, in the early 60s, the L.A. and the New York art worlds were about as far apart as, as they've you been. Know, my experience was exactly, exactly the opposite. I mean, Irving Blum and all the, and the people that I met, you know, like Larry Bell. And uh, anyway, they, they were really, was really friendly and we had a good time. Bob Irwin, I mean, and then I, I met them again and became probably even more friendly when I was uh, in uh, Irvine for a while in 67. You were an artist in residence at Irvine, yeah, although you never taught there because you didn't take the loyalty out. Right, right. I only lasted two weeks. But anyway, I was there, and then I made prints with Ken Tyler, and then I was bi-coastal for a few years, working out in L.A. with Ken Tyler. Was there work by, by the Irwin's Bells, uh, Ferris Boys, or yeah, other L.A. You artists? Me, you saw yeah, that yeah. I thought visited it by 67. I was able to go to the studio to see Bob Irwin, Billy Al Bankston, you know. I saw a lot of things, and you know, I mean, just as a coincidence, I mean, Jim Terrell, or James Terrell, by the way, was uh, working for the guy that later became editor of Art Forum. Oh, John Copeland's. He was a graduate student at Irvine, so I met him then. So, I mean, it was all, as I say, I, there wasn't any big, I don't know, this idea of the split I never experienced. At the risk of asking a preposterous question that I can't possibly ground in your work, did seeing the light and space work of 60s and early 70s Los Angeles, do you think any of that worked its way into your work? I like the paintings and the things that they did, but, you know, obviously Bob Irwin. I mean, but I mean, I don't, you know, somehow, uh, you know, light's a big problem, but I mean, you know, I'm so grounded in the material substance of the materials I use. I'm not very good at achieving effects, but probably I'm not that interested in those particular effects. But I, I don't see anything wrong with it. It's, a great, it's great when it works. In fact, I, speaking of those people in that place and time, I think Ed Ruscha designed... You had a 1970 show at what is now the Modern in Fort Worth. And 1970. Yeah, yeah, well, Ed, Ed, Ed did all... Uh, uh, Felita did the show in uh, Fort Worth, and, and Ed did all uh, the designing for Art Forum for Phil. Leader was the editor. And oh, he did that's the, right. And, uh, and Phil wrote the catalog, and had, uh, Ed, Ed did the design for the catalog. That's right. That's right. You, in the, in the 60s and 70s, had kind of three prominent, well-known in the art world, outside art pursuits. Tennis, squash, and auto racing. I was an auto racing fan. I mean, you know, fan, uh, you know, they they make you into a, a racer or something like that, which I never, never was, and certainly never will be. <laughs> but anyway, yes, it happened over an amount of time. But I I did play tennis and squash and, and all the time. 
Well, let's start with auto racing. You made the second BMW art car commission, among other things. Did did your interest in auto racing find its way into the studio and into the work? Well, eventually, I mean, it did. But basically, the interest in racing was, uh, you know, psychological relief. Uh, the world of racing is so much more... <laughs> It's a relief from the art world, and uh, but on the other hand, the people are even perhaps even crazier. It's hard to say, but it's it's a world of its own, and just being sort of in it or on the side. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty engrossing. I mean, it's pretty hard to not get into it somehow. But uh, I don't know. For sure, it had an influence on me. I mean, you know, the whole thing about speed and how you see. I mean, you you talk about the light in California or that kind of thing. But the way you see things at speed and the way they think about it and the whole business of designing uh, and the materials. I mean, just say, you know, does carbon fiber use a lot of carbon fiber lately? And I mean, that, you know, that's where it came from. That was going to be my my very next question. Did you take the carbon fiber or even aluminum at some point from auto racing and, uh, aluminum and paint I already as had, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the paint I already had too. Carbon fiber took a while to get to because carbon you can do carbon fiber in a in a kind of you know non-expensive way, but to do carbon fiber quote unquote the right way is really hard and uh, and quite expensive. Mainly because you have to bake it, and that just creates a whole nother problem. The other, the other two interests I mentioned were tennis and squash. I, I, I myself, as listeners may know, I'm a pretty big tennis fan. I, I could probably spend hours looking for tennis geometries in your paintings, but I probably won't. Yeah, do you probably quite that won't crazy. find them either. <laughs> <laughs> Was that just fun, or were you finding things there that were of you? No, you gotta. I mean, you, you gotta do something to forget about it all, as they say, and that that was fun. And actually, uh, tennis was kind of great, and the same thing happened with squash. It was it always worked when you traveled. I mean, because you could go. I remember going to San Francisco and playing in the courts on the hard courts in San Francisco. That was way more interesting than the panel or the exhibition I was having. And the same thing with squash. You know, you could travel, you could play tennis, and I played tennis in Prague in '68. You know, and things like that. When you went to places, you could find a local tennis club or later on the squash club. I mean, I remember playing squash in Singapore. I mean, and in Hong Kong. I mean, it's fun just to go to a local club and, you know, meet people. And it's a nice way of getting away from it all. So continuing my bouncing around, and thank you for for indulging me. In in the current exhibition, both at at the Whitney and, and I think now in Fort Worth, are some 1959, I don't know if you'd call them drawings or studies, but they're for the aluminum paintings. And they're on the stationery of Mrs. Frank Stella of Ipswich, Massachusetts. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> so first, is that your mom's stationery? Uh, yeah, yeah. So you were 26 years old. No, I was younger than that. I wasn't 26 then. I couldn't have been. I don't know how old I was. 23, 23, yeah, something sorry. Something like that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I but I I made those. You know, and I, we had a house on the water in Ipswich, and I made some drawings. Yeah. So why were you using your mother's stationery? Well, that, you know, that's another thing. I mean, you're calling them drawings, and that's in some sense maybe they are drawings, but they're notations. I mean, they're diagrams for ideas about paintings you want to make. And there are a number of 
similar diagrams for paintings, many of which, maybe not all of which, you, you made. Is that as close as you came to making studies for paintings? Yeah, that, I, I mean, I didn't need any more than that. And, and you know, that's it, yeah. I knew what I was going to do, so, I mean, I just had to have a, a, a program. As you began to work off of the wall into three dimensions, did that practice change? Did you need to do more, forgive the word, but sophisticated studies? Uh, yeah, I had to make 3D models in order to get them built. Once I sort of committed myself to building a painting and then painting on it, pretty much had to, you know, give the uh, uh, the fabricators information that they could use. That seems to me, as a non-artist and as an outsider, just an immense change in in practice, in studio practice. How big a difference was that for you to go from being able to do a felt-tip pen sketch on your mother's stationery to having to do full-blown models? But they were, I mean, they weren't very full-blown models. They're foam core models that you cut with a mat knife. Still way more than what you were doing before. Yeah, but, I mean, you change a little bit. But, I mean, I, I don't – it's like doing a puzzle or something. I like putting things together, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, it seemed to work quite easily for me. So you're saying that if future art historians are tempted to think of that as a big deal, that you're, you're now well, waiting Well, it is a big deal to build a <laughs> painting. It's a – anyway uh, – conceptually, I suppose, anyway, if you want to use that horrible word, you know, to think about what you're doing. I mean, painting a painting is a given a surface and then making a mark on the surface. But if you make the surface yourself and arrange the, a series of surfaces uh, that you're then going to paint on, it starts to become quite a bit different. So from the early 60s into the early 70s, you made paintings on stretcher bars of quite unusual and non 90-degree dimensions, if you will, and I'm trying to come up with a phrase that covers everything from the irregular polygons to something else. Right, but I made I stopped making my own stretches after the um, copper paintings, which were simple right angles. And then, and then I yeah, and then starting probably in '63 when I was in Dartmouth, I had the university carpenters build a kind of zigzag and star-shaped pieces that I wanted to make. And then after that, Jim LeBrun, I got, you know, I had to use professional fabricators to make the stretchers because I didn't have the skill. Yeah. So did you have to test, or were the, the professional carpenters you were using that good, how painted canvas would work and hang or and not sag on those structures? Well, did it does. Do I mean, it, 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 that? That, no, I mean, but you just do the stretching and you have to cut the notches and everything. But they don't, it, it doesn't work perfectly but then nothing works perfectly but i mean after a while the actually if they get as they get older they stabilize the real problem is not the uh, the geometry of the stretcher actually it's the problems of the wood and the and the canvas the difference in temperature and absorption of moisture it's it's something i hadn't really thought of until talking with robert irwin last week and he talked about how he practiced building out stretchers for his paintings in the early early 1960s and how it led him to change the dimensions and shapes of the stretchers he was using to kind of counter some of those those effects. Yeah, he's a lot more <laughs> involved in the general idea. I wanted to ask you about Hollis Frampton's Secret World of Frank Stella. Too bad you can't ask Hollis. 
Boy, do I know. That was his idea entirely, a little bit yes, your idea? Yeah, yeah. How did it come about? No, I have, no, no, it was his idea. I think he was, you know, he was very hip on Joyce, uh, very involved with Joyce and Pound and those kind of people. And I, and I think it's, a, 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 it's supposed to be a takeoff on the portrait of an artist as a young man. Yes, yes. So did, did, he, in, did he pose you? Did you pose you? I don't know. I mean, I, we would, you know, find places that were obvious. I, I, it was, and also, I think it was supposed to be a spoof on the uh, abstract expressionist, you know, the way they were so into the city or all that kind of thing. A cross between the, the painters and the beatniks, you know, so it's supposed to look. And they were always posing in ties and, and in yours, or certainly not. I mean, it's, it's really, no, no, they, they are pretty beatniks, funny. Right? <laughs> anyway, but, 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 but you know, in the end, you can see that a lot of that stuff ends up, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there in which the background is a kind of ends up in some ways in the paintings or in sculptures later on. So they were places and things that we picked. And there was a lot of a fair amount of, I guess, plays on art history. I mean, I guess the obvious one is the foreshortening the Mantegna picture, that the one in Breyer in Melania. It's easy to think that a project like that is a lot of fun when you're in your 20s. It can be a lot different to look back at it 60 years later. and It's fairly embarrassing, yes. But, I mean, on the other hand, you, you know, being young can be embarrassing. On the other hand, there's a certain sense in which it wasn't that terrible. Well, I, I, I think that they, it's kind of – I know you, you don't like the word conceptual, but – it's ended up being a series that has some real conceptual value and something that was a real turn away from the kind of hypo-serious macho culture of the abstract expressionists. And I guess, are you, are you glad you did it? Oh, as I was saying, I didn't do it. Hollis did it. And you participated. A, yeah, but only as the object or subject. And you have to remember how those photographs were as unpopular as anything could be at the time. I mean, they were hated. And Hollis was, was one of the most unpopular artists that ever walked the streets of New York. In 1967, when he showed Zorn's Lemma, he finally got recognized as an artist, and it was the most uh, review, uh, review at the Whitney of his movie, thing, Zorn's Lemma, and it was one of the most vicious, vituperative reviews any artist anywhere has ever received. So now we're talking about it in a way where it seems was like it might be interesting, but it certainly was unacceptable in some ways, which always surprised me. Just kind of childish, you could say. But that wasn't the way it appeared. So I know from having spoken with you on a stage in front of an audience before that you often, when talking in front of audiences, like to have a blackboard up there with you. Why is that, and how did that idea come to you and come about? It's not much of an idea. I mean, I could show a slide, I guess, but it's a simple way if, if you want to make a, if you have a simple idea that you want to get across and so that it doesn't appear abstract when you're talking about it to the audience, that you just do it. You diagram it and they get it and it's over and then you go on. I mean, you say it's not much of an idea, but I've spoken with a lot of artists on a lot of stages and you're the only one who's ever requested a blackboard or a whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'm basically an <laughs> academic person. <laughs> I used to do it, I think, I don't know, I, I could do it all the time, but it was the best way to show uh, something about the irregular polygons. 
because you could show the, the easiest thing to do is to show uh, the Malevich painting with the black background, I think, in the blue triangle, and then show a painting in mind which has the triangle going into a square or a rectangle and show what the difference is in the way the geometry works. And they get it. And it's really pretty hard to explain that in words. Those, those are my, my, my favorite Frank Stella paintings. <laughs> I want to close by asking about the protractor paintings. In his catalog essay for this exhibition, Michael Opping devotes several paragraphs to the scale, the enormity of the protractor paintings. First, how did they come to be that big? Well, for, for one thing, the, the, the big ones were painted much later when I moved my studio. So when I had a studio on Houston Street. So they were done in the 70s. Most of the paintings were painted between 68 and 70 in a slightly more conventional studio space. Uh, but the point is they're not so enormous. They're kind of stretched out. But they, they had a module, a 10-foot module. And when I first made them, you know, 10 by 10, 10 by 15, the biggest ones were 10 by 20. That wasn't the biggest deal in the world. But my dealer at the time, Larry Rubin, was horrified. He was often horrified. He was horrified by the uh, <laughs> irregular polygons, too. And then, the, and then the, the Polish synagogue paintings. I mean, they had a tough life. I have to feel sorry for him. But the, the idea with the, with, the, with the protractor paintings was that they were all, you couldn't sell them. They were only ones that were 10 feet tall. He said, don't you understand that the... Average, you know, there are very few apartments in New York that have a ceiling height of more than eight or nine feet. What am I going to do with these paintings? And I didn't really feel that sorry for them, but that was the concern at the time. But that, I mean, that's how they were conceived of as large. But I mean, as paintings, they're not that big. And then the, the so-called big ones are just that scale dragged out. I mean, because the biggest one is 10 by 50 feet, right? Well, 50 feet's pretty big, but on the horizontal, it's not such a big deal. But going back to the ones that were kind of 10 by 20-ish, why did you, what about that size or that scale was important at that time? Look, the, the protractor was 5 by 10, the, the module was 5 by 10 feet. That was the protractor. But, you know, the protractor wasn't so interesting at is a half protractor, but if you put the, another one underneath it, you had a circular protractor figure that you could work with. So that was 10 feet. So that was the, that was the working module for the pieces. Michael Opping also writes that he thought that those, or he thinks that those paintings and the subsequent work did much to popularize abstraction in America. I wonder what you think of that idea. Do you think they did, and do you think that's a good thing? I don't know. They certainly didn't at the time. And when you that was my first thought, too. <laughs> and when you said, you know, what do I think about decorative painting, those were considered, you know, decorative in the extreme and not in the extreme of quality. So it was a, they, you know, they had a mixed, on the other hand, they were attractive. So some people didn't pay attention to the real critical estimation and liked them because they were pretty. I've always thought they were a really good mix of decorative and rigorous. Well, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> because they're they're very, you know, they're austere without being off-putting. They're austere in a really visually engaging way that makes, at least to me as a viewer, want to understand why I find, why my eyes sit on them and stay on them. You know, they 
they're uninflected, so the painting is really flat. I mean, and they really are decorative in that sense. And I think, you know, they, you know, sometimes they get by and sometimes it's tough. You know, it's hard to paint that way. Well, Frank Stella, thank you so much for talking with me. Okay, my pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.